Du hører på Litteraturhusets podcast som presenterer bearbeidede versioner av samtaler og foredrag fra Litteraturhusets program. Er du interessert i mer information, kan du gå til litteraturhuset.no for oversikt over alle våra arrangementer. Good evening everyone and welcome to this conversation called On Cats and Women. My name is Tone Jørpland Lunde and I work here at the House of Literature. With Me Too at its peak, a short story added a new perspective to the discussion. The American writer Kristen Rupenian caused the sensation when her debut short story Cat Person was published in The New Yorker in 2017. The story's treatment of bad sex and of going through with the act only because refusi- refusing would cause a scene resonated strongly with readers. With more than four million hits, the short story became the New Yorker's most read online fiction text of all time. And as one of several consequences, a new account on Twitter emerged called Men React to Cat Person. The short story has even added a new meaning to the expression cat person. It is now newspeak for a person one regrets having had sex with. Uh, for those of us who really enjoyed Cat Person, we were happy to discover that Rupenian had more to offer. You Know You Want This is a collection of short stories that in length gives the reader a hard look at the messed up power dynamic between men and women and shows us that Rupenian can no longer be reduced to a Me Too writer. You Know You Want This consists of horror elements, uneasiness and a fine meshed humor that emerges emerges when humans and relations are exposed in a light that is far from flattering. To talk with Repenian tonight, we are very fortunate to have with us Eline Lundfjern. Through her three novels, Ung Jente Voksen Mann, Klokken og Sengen, and Forbruk i September, she has established herself as a distinct literary voice, and just like Repenian, she has been known to address what might be called the grey areas of Me Too. And when she led a feminist book club in Bergen, Rupenian's story was among the works discussed. Please give them a warm welcome. Uh, thank you, Tune. Uh, and thanks to all of you for coming out. Um, and welcome to you, Kristen. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> to the Oslo House of uh, Literature. Thanks for having me. Um, first of all, how are you doing? You've been on a book tour for a while now. How's I'm it? good. It's been amazing. It's been busy. Um, I've been traveling through Europe for that past 10 days about. I was in uh, Germany and then Belgium and then Amsterdam and now here. Um, so yeah, I've seen a real cross section of a lot of different different places and right. people. Uh, and you're promoting your book. Uh, you know, you want this. <laughs> yep. Uh, and it recently came out in Norwegian mm-hmm. uh, translation, a really good translation. Yeah, so uh, good. I translated it here. Oh, hello. There she is. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk after. Yeah. Thank you. So you can be really happy about that. Yeah. Because it's a really good translation. That's wonderful. Du vet att du vill, as it is called in Norwegian. Uh, and this is a collection of short stories. Mm-hmm. And obviously we have to talk about your very famous short story, Definitely. Cat Person. So I hope you're not sick of talking about it. No, <laughs> never. Because we're definitely not. 
but I want to start our convers conversation with uh, the actual beginning of the book, uh, and I don't mean the first story, uh -huh. but uh, um, the dedication uh -huh. in front here. Yeah. Um, because you have dedicated this book to your mother, mm -hmm. uh, and that kind of surprised me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can see why. Uh, because, I mean, this book has a lot of sexually explicit yeah. writing in it, right. a lot of violence and yeah. um, abusive people. Mm, that's true. <laughs> um, and you thank your mother for yeah. teaching you how to love the things that scare you. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was really sweet and. Mm. It seemed like there was this story of its own there. Yeah. So could you talk about that and what your uh, what the reaction has been from your family in of general course. with this book? Yeah, <laughs> I would be very happy to. Um, yeah, no, it's funny. I think often of my my poor long suffering mother who has read <laughs> variations of all of these stories now um, and has in fact been incredibly enthusiastic and kind of eager to talk about it, which shocked me. I, um, but it shouldn't have because the reason that I dedicated the book to her and what that means explicitly is that when she's a huge reader, um, and when I was growing up, she was, a, she was specifically a fan of horror. Like, she really loved Stephen King and Dean Koontz and all those books. And I used to steal them off the shelves and read them sort of long before I was ready for them. And sometimes we would fight about it. My dad actually thought it was not appropriate for a 10-year-old <laughs> to be reading Pet Cemetery, And my mom would kind of defend him. And then other times sort of, like, slip me a book under the table. Um, and, yeah, and so, so it was partly that. It was partly just like a genuine um, kind of gratitude for um, loving books a lot and then helping me to partly by making them seem kind of like forbidden. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Forbidden and exciting and a thing that adults loved. That was my relationship to books. And I think that that really shaped me. Um, but I also think there's like another level there, <clears throat> excuse me, um, about a kind of larger relationship to fear and to feeling as though when you're frightened of something rather than run away from it, you should maybe move towards it. And I think um, at its best, that's bravery. And it's a thing that I learned from her not to run away from things I'm scared of. But I think sometimes, and only as I've gotten older, do I think that it can be a sort of a, a lack of self-protection, right? To mm. just be like, oh, a monster, let me like pet it as opposed <laughs> to running away. Um, and so it's all those things. Um, but really, mostly, um, it's in genuine gratitude. Um, I owe her a lot. So. Yeah. Cool, cool mom. <laughs> she is. She's a very cool uh, mom. And the stories in the book are very dark. Yeah. And I think a lot darker than a lot of people expected. Yeah. Uh, having read <laughs> yeah. uh, Cat Person, even though Other, that was a exactly, dark story quite too. Quite dark itself. In a way. Yeah. But some of these stories, uh, I mean, they're a bit different. Uh, and there's a lot of supernatural elements yeah. in yeah. some of these stories as well. Uh, and so I'm curious if this is something that you always been fascinated by like after childhood uh, mm -hmm. as a young adult or if it's been more of a process of uh, finding back to the the things origins. that you thought about and <laughs> yeah. read as a child. Yeah, I would say there was some element of coming back to it. I, I always read it. I always read I throughout my life, no matter what I was doing, I was always reading and I especially loved scary stories and horror movies and all that kind of um, like that whole cultural it was just where I went, like where my heart went. But I didn't know to write it or it didn't occur to me to write it for a really long time. I feel like for a long time when I wrote, which I did 
only sporadically. Um, I would, you know, I would start writing and I got frustrated or things wouldn't come out right and I would give up. And always when I was doing that, I was trying to write what I would call kind of serious stories. Like I wanted stories that would reflect well on me as their author, you know, like people would read that story and be like, Christine Penny and what a, what a smart and good human being. And it turns out that actually that's a really, I couldn't get anywhere with that. So instead I wrote this book so that people could think other things about me. Um, But yeah. And and so then it wasn't until I I got back to writing the kinds of things I like to read and Mm. thinking about stories first as stories and stories sort of, that might like light up the part of my brain that liked, you know, just kind of going into a movie theater or opening a book um, that I really was able to write consistently in a way that satisfied me. What were you reading as a child? I mean, you I mentioned read, Stephen King. But yeah, I, yeah, I read that. I mean, and all just kind of like, I actually think it was funny. I remember being kind of 10 or 11 in our library when I was growing up was like it had the children's section downstairs and then you could kind of graduate to the adult section when we're all the young adult <laughs> books were. and I spent I like I was a kind of a late graduate like I stayed downstairs <laughs> in the children's section for a really long time especially in the um the like fantasy and sci-fi section but they weren't that separate and I think that's one of the things that I liked and it's still kind of how I read was just you'd wander in and you'd pick one book off the shelf and it would be like Ursula Le Guin I was a huge fan of um her fantasy novels when I was a kid but um it was also and I guess you guys probably have your own like classics but like Ramona like all like books about kids getting into trouble at the same time you're reading books about like monsters eating the planet like it was just a complete mix um (laughs) and I feel like that is reflected absolutely in this book and and it's just the way I read yeah and actually some of these stories reminds me of Roald Dahl Yes, um, yes, a huge Roald Dahl fan. Yeah, um, absolutely cool because he also wrote really dark stories yeah, with supernatural right, right. elements to them. A terrifying. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I still have memories from yeah. like being... the witches in Norway. Actually, yes, right? I thought my yeah. mom was a witch. Uh-huh. Everyone, I mean, they could, she could have been. Like, <laughs> yeah, who knows? I don't know. But, <laughs> but, but what he really understood, I think, is uh, sort of. The, the reality of a child, yeah. like how they think right. and what they're afraid of and right. how it feels like to be like controlled right. and monitored right. by adults, which yeah. can sort of feel like a violent situation definitely, to be in. Definitely. Uh, and I think that you have managed to do the same thing uh, with young adults, uh-huh. and people in their 20s maybe, yeah, like yeah. myself. Uh-huh. And, um, and they're not controlled by their parents anymore but by society and and sort of the forces that are kind of moving around you that you can kind of only half understand that's what it's like to be a kid social expectations and um yeah bodies changing and (laughs) yeah it is uh so my question is are you saying something about young adulthood by using elements of horror and uh yeah 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 i mean Sure, I always, it's always hard. It's like, the thing I said, I said the thing, which I guess was young adulthood is horrifying, children, (laughs) childhood is horrifying. I mean, my story is also like, there are a lot of children in them, like a surprising number of like, and mostly around the same age of like 11, 12, 13. And so I think that's the thing when I, I know I think of as like straight out of a horror story is like early adolescence. But I guess young adulthood is too. I hadn't really thought about it in quite the same <laughs> way. But I think any transitional period is a is a 
has the potential for horror. It puts you in that like liminal space, right? Where you're not one thing or the other. Things are changing. Like you were saying, you're not quite sure of the forces that are controlling you. Um, whenever you're in a position like that, which I think we are regularly throughout our lives, yeah. some of those old kind of myths and stories, I think, feel more relevant than they might during times when things are calmer and you've been sort of, you have your feet under you a little bit more. Yeah, everything has to be redefined exactly. in a way. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, why, why did you choose to write short stories? <laughs> Because yeah. uh, I always think of short stories as like the most difficult genre to write in. Yeah. Uh, and you do it so well. well uh, you. So do you start out with a lot of ideas and like ways you want to explore them or how does how does it happen yeah well now that i have to write a novel i think of a novel as the most difficult <laughs> genre to write in so i Why think you it, have to write i mean novel? have to i am i'm contracted to and i'm trying to oh. do you know what i mean and it's like you discover <laughs> this is so hard um but uh no i will don't worry my publishers are here they don't have to write. um but uh no i i think i actually almost all of those stories i wrote while i was procrastinating on a larger <laughs> novel project i'm almost always um and it's one of the reasons i believe I'll, I'll get through my novel eventually. I've always been working on them. I finished them. And there's always a point in when I'm writing a novel where I'd never, where there's, I'd rather do anything else other than write that novel. And I think that's the point at which short story ideas start really leaping up as attractive <laughs> possibilities. Um, and I love short stories too, because I think for me, once writing is going really well, like it often happens, it's like, this sudden rush of like ideas and like I the I when I love it when it feels like you're writing a first draft so quickly that it almost feels like you're reading the story and I think you can do that with a short story in a way that I haven't figured out how to do with a novel right because the process of it is so drawn out and like you need to have kind of multiple entry points but a short story and and most of the stories that ended up in this book Um, certainly I worked on them for years, you know, afterwards, polishing and editing and whatever, but largely they came to me and I experienced them as kind of like a single experience, a single kind of moment in time. And so writing them felt, had that kind of clarity. And I think a novel, I think I have, I think, I don't know. It's like you have to somehow expand that or like add those moments together to create something larger. Um, and I, I don't know. Yeah, I guess that's just a lot of rambling about the differences between <laughs> short stories and novels, but I'm thinking about that a lot now. Um, yeah. I always thought I would Chapters write a novel. Chapters can be like yeah, short it's stories. True. It's true. Yeah. I'll just do that. I'll just break <laughs> yeah. it down like that. It'll be easy. Uh, and another thing that occurred to me as I was reading uh, yeah. your stories is your ability to write dialogue, oh, uh, which is really impressive to me. Oh. Um And I, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> And I need you to tell me how okay, to do well. it. Uh, because I think the, the dialogue seems so authentic yeah. to me. Uh, and I know how hard that yeah. is. Uh, because one thing is making up a character yeah. and um, uh, finding out who they are right. and uh, how they see themselves and yeah. their personal personalities. Yeah. Uh, but a completely different thing is finding out how they communicate right. Right. Uh, who they are and what they think. Yeah. So what is the process like for you when you sort of construct dialogue? Yeah, um, I think it varies from story to story. One thing I do know is that I usually have a lot more 
dialogue in early drafts than I end up having in the final one that I'll write a lot of kind of extra talking where not a lot of things are happening and they're just kind of blathering at each other, but maybe I'm getting a sense of their voice and like one or two worthwhile lines of dialogue is getting in. Um, and I, and I think that, you know, I've also been learning in these last couple months to write screenplays and that's been really interesting because then you only have the dialogue and you realize how much you're rely, like, relying on other things and when people only can convey everything they're thinking and everything that's <laughs> ever happened to them through dialogue, it's just suddenly you like are joyfully leaping back into a short story where you can just tell what someone thought without having to figure out how to indirectly convey it. Um yeah, I mean, I can't, I'm very flattered. I don't know that there's an answer. I do think that I feel like I laugh the most when I'm writing dialogue <laughs> and that it feels fun. It feels like dialogue, like it moves fast. Your eye moves fast through it. So it's a place to like kind of give people, I feel like you slide kind of easily through a story when you're in dialogue. And so it's worth knowing when to use those moments. I have a friend who said that she learned from a professor that, a dial a piece of dialogue or a line of dialogue should be doing three things simultaneously okay. in a story and if it didn't it doesn't belong there and i've like never done more than like two and a half <laughs> things in a line of dialogue that seems really hard to me um but i do think recognizing like when you're using dialogue as like to be a little lazy like to be like oh as you know joe we both arrived <laughs> here yesterday afternoon you know so that you don't have to explain things um that's not a good you can cut that later <laughs> um, and so i usually put a lot of stuff like that in dialogue and then later move it out yeah it's yeah. one way of finding out who they are exactly exactly they can tell you and then you can be more sophisticated in the way that you introduce it yeah to the audience. Yeah, because like conversation is a lot about showing off your identity yeah, in a way yeah, or yeah. how you want to be perceived. Exactly. It's a big yeah. theme in this book. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I want to move on to Cat Person now. Sure. <laughs> of course. A story that also has a lot of great dialogue in it. Yeah. Um, but I want to ask you to begin with uh, about your life before uh -huh. uh, the story got published. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I had a whole life. <laughs> because it's... <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, you <laughs> hadn't actually published any, published anything before this. Yeah, no, I had a couple stories online. Um, I had one story that had been accepted to a very small print literary magazine, but hadn't come out yet. And my agent had sent Cat Person around to a bunch of literary magazines that had all rejected it. And so... Yeah, I mean, it, over that whole summer, that summer of 2017, I was on fellowship. I graduated from my my program, my writing program, but I was just trying to write. I just put a novel like in the drawer that I had been working on for like two years. So I was kind of feeling disheartened. Um, yeah, and, and I was kind of the thing that I think about the most is that I was sort of like doing a lot of math in my head, trying to figure out how long my money would last, yeah. like how long it would be before I'd have to get a full time job and couldn't be writing all the time. And then it was getting down to like, okay, six months, three months. Um, yeah. Were you afraid that you wouldn't get anything? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I had, you know, I had my life before had been a lot <laughs> of kind of jumping from like, lily pad to lily pad of like, I wasn't always writing, but I mostly was reading and I didn't like I was a student a lot or I was like teaching, but only part time or I was in the Peace Corps. So I had all this kind of like luxurious time to read and like when I could do it right. And I had just been cobbling that life together for like a decade. And I was into my 30s. I like 
didn't have any savings. I didn't have a car. I no, I didn't have a car. Um, I didn't have a house. Like I was just sort of like, you can't live like this forever. Kristen. Like at some point you have to get a real job and like start saving for retirement. And really I felt like if I didn't, if something didn't catch within that year, I was like, I'm going to have, I didn't even know what job I was qualified for very little at that point. Um, but I was going to have to figure something out. Yeah. It worked out well, though. I mean, um, yeah, the timing, <laughs> the timing worked out. <laughs> well, what made you write such a story? Do you think? Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about yeah. it, and um, yeah, yes. Margot and Robbie. Yeah, so so it's it's a pretty straightforward story in its in its description. Um, it's about two characters, Robert and Margot. Um, Margot is is twenty, and the story is told from her person point of view and she meets Robert who's a bit older we eventually discover he's in his mid-30s um, they meet in person but then they spend a long time flirting via text and eventually meet up for one long and sort of excruciating date um, and the kind of arc of the story is that or the, the the nerve center of the story is that at one point as I think um, she mentioned in her introduction Margot having pushed the date along kind of at every step disco discovers kind of right at the moment of decision that she doesn't want to sleep with Robert and yet does a kind of quick calculation in her head and decides it would be too much trouble and sort of too difficult to say no. So she says yes instead. Um, and then the rest of the story deals with kind of the aftermath of that decision and the way Robert deals with his, her eventual rejection. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a funny story. Like I wrote it right after I finished my MFA. So, so classes finished in April and it was the first story that I wrote when I didn't have the expectation that like a circle of my peers were going to read whatever <laughs> I wrote. And I feel like that freedom is sort of evident in Cat Person because like, <laughs> like it's just not the kind of story necessarily that you think your, you know, your professor is going to be like, yes, this is the direction you should be going. I mean, truly that story is one third sex scene. Like there's one third where they meet, there's one third where they go on a date and then they're having sex for a full one third of the story. Like terrible graphic sex. It's yeah. a weird, weirdly shaped story. Um, and somehow it got into the New Yorker. Yeah, yeah apparently. Um, but so I guess at this point, just having a story published yes. in the New Yorker Truly. was a really big deal to you. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about how that happened and yeah. how that was a game changer for you, uh, regardless of Everything. what would come of it yeah, later. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I still say, I said that and I, I still say now, it was the happiest moment of my life. Um, when my agent called and told me it had gotten in, it was just like, because really that was when I thought, okay, I'm probably going to be able to do this. Like writing is not going to be measured out in like weeks or months anymore. Like in one way or another, I will probably be able to keep doing it for a significant span of time. And that was huge. And the, the gap, I mean, I'm sure you have a sense of it. I don't know if other people do, but like it's very, very rare for someone who doesn't already have stories out there to get published in The New Yorker. It felt like winning the lottery and it really was. Um, and so I thought, you know, now... I'll be able to probably maybe get a teaching job, you know, teach fiction. Um, I, we thought it's funny remembering these conversations now, like when Jenny, my agent, before she sent the story to the New Yorker, we were talking about the possibility of a story collection and story collections are very hard to sell sort of famously. And so I, I was like, Oh, you know, I, I have these stories. I think they fit together. I might like to try and make them a book. And I remember saying, well, you know, you can try, but like <laughs> stories don't usually sell. And then she was like, unless it gets into the New Yorker. And then we both sort of laughed at how absurd <laughs> that likelihood was. And then, but then even when it did, 
did. I put the collection together and I think we thought maybe it'll sell for like some relative, like very small amount of money and it's not guaranteed at all even then. Mm. Like one story, it increases your likelihood a lot. But we didn't know. I mean, it, it was still so haphazard. But so that when the story got in, truly, yeah, I mean, I was overjoyed. I called my mom. I called my dad. Um, <laughs> I told all my friends. Um, and I did put together at that point a draft of the collection and like yeah. you know i had the title and the you know the, basically the same story is arranged and we were preparing to take this the it was you know due to come out in december and so jenny and i said okay in january once everyone's come back for the holidays we'll we'll try and sell the collection <laughs> cool yeah um and i don't know about you but to me it's sometimes uh it surprised me when I realized that people still read. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I know that you've been asked this question many times, uh -huh. but I think it's interesting because um, some time has gone by now. Yeah. It's about like one and a half years since the story yeah, was published yeah. or something. Close, yeah. uh, so why do you think it resonated with so many people? Uh, and I'm guessing that you asked yourself this question yeah. at that time, but how has the answer to this question changed if it has yeah um yeah how would you answer it today no that's that's actually it's feeling i really do feel like now i have an answer that i've kind of polished and i can give you know that <laughs> it's just sort of a theory and i and i don't i don't honestly even know how much i believe it i just feel like i have to say something so i have some ideas but i think the truth mm -hmm. is no one knows and i think anyone who says they know why like Um, virality works the way that it does, like that they can predict the course of the internet and what people <laughs> want to pay attention to at any given time. Like they're blowing smoke if they say so. You just can't. Um, but I do think, and I guess, and so when it happened, I would say, I think when it happened, I was mostly overwhelmed and kind of afraid. And what I remember from from like the actual days when people were talking about it, which was really like at its height, it was like two or three days. It was a weekend, you know, that that whole thing happened. And I just remember like trying to think of like equivalent moments. And I just like couldn't think of any that ended well it just seemed like always like when people when twitter discovers something they sort of like swoop in and like tear it apart and everyone loves it for one day and then the next day they hate it and it gets smashed down <laughs> and you're just lying there in the pieces being like what the hell happened you know and and so i was like i really didn't know like you know maybe are people gonna end by calling my house am i gonna have to you know and giving me threats am i gonna have to move is my picture gonna be ever like none of the things that ended up happening but i remember just not knowing how to understand it except that a huge amount of people were suddenly paying really close attention to something that I had written and then also to me and I found that terrifying <laughs> um and then with some distance I think it turned out the conversation went surprisingly well it went some really interesting and like productive and and powerful places um and I'm really glad of it and that Now I have some thoughts about that, but I like to remember when I'm talking about it that like that was not guaranteed and I didn't know it at the mm. time. It was just everybody all of a sudden like, you know, talking about something all at once. Um, but yeah, I can answer the question now of like why <laughs> <laughs> now that I've totally undermined my own theory. Um, no, I think it was a couple of things. I think that um, the timing was right for sure. Um, people sometimes ask me like, 
did you write this as a Me Too story? Did you mean to like tap into the conversations that were going on? And I have just a really straightforward answer, which is like, no, because I couldn't have. I wrote the story before. Um, but I do think that, again, in retrospect, um, I wrote this story in April of 2017. And so that was after like the Trump had been elected. Yeah. It was after the Access Hollywood tape had come out. And I do remember the feeling in the air at that time being one of just like intense tension and frustration and specifically like between men, men and women, this feeling that like things were bad, weren't just bad, but they'd been really bad for a long time. But for some reason we were only just like taking notice or like feeling it painfully again. And I do feel like that kind of frustration and, and that tension was in the story and you can see it. And I feel like that tension is also what powered the Me Too movement, right? This desire to like speak out against things that have been happening for a long time. And so I feel like it's not, maybe it's not a pure coincidence that like w my story caught this larger wave and people were ready to talk about things that they just hadn't quite known to talk about before. Um, so I think that was a piece of it. I think that, um, I think the core of the conversation and the part that seems really valuable to me and that I feel the most sort of investment and pride in is um i do think that a lot of women mostly young women but truly not all i mean i got emails and messages from people of all ages saying something along the lines of this story reflect like if you had asked me you know before i read the story would i ever have sex with someone just to be polite i would have said no that's ridiculous <laughs> and it's not until i saw it broken down like that that i said oh you know actually maybe i would and in fact i have and i feel like it was really amazing to have people like be willing to be as honest with themselves as they were about like the way they saw themselves in the story even when it wasn't flattering and it didn't feel good mm. um and i think that is kind of the heart of it but i also think then sort of whenever women are talking about sex on the internet, then like there's this other level of conversation where like then the like tw the reaction and kind of the backlash set in where then there were people who read the story and didn't like it at all and wanted to talk about why they hated it. And I think the truth is when a, a story can't go like super viral in the way that Caprison did, unless people can fight about it. And it turned out that kind of by accident, I'd written a story where one person could read it one way and be a hundred percent sure they were right. And someone else could read it the other way and be a hundred percent they were right. And they could just fight over it for three days straight on Twitter. And so like that was like the next level. Um, so yeah, that's my theory. I have no idea really. Um, but that's my guess. It must've been, very disorienting. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. For uh, sure. And it was also widely mistaken for a memoir. It was actually discussed, is this story uh, fiction or is it a personal essay? Yeah. And I think that ha happens a lot to female writers. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, how do you deal with the absurdity of, <laughs> <laughs> of people mistaking yeah. Margot for me? Or... Yeah, just having your short story shared and oh yeah, discussed <laughs> in, in such an immediate and public way on the internet. Yeah, yeah, I mean, mostly at first I dealt with it by ignoring it, by yeah. like closing my computer <laughs> and turning off my phone, which I think was the smartest thing I ever did, truly. And like the only way I got through it with my sanity intact. Even so, like the stuff that I took in before... I shut my computer off. And then eventually once it was kind of over and I'd sold my book and I was like, okay, I can try and figure this out. I went back and kind of read it. And I still feel like I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that. I think, I don't know. I mean, 
writing, I feel like for every writer, there must be like a moment where like you have an audience. You know what I mean? Like, mm. sure. Like before that, I had had an audience of, you know, 15 people in a classroom, you know, <laughs> and that then I had this other huge audience. And I think you never quite forget that. I, You know, and, and mm. that I do sort of feel like I have to relearn how to write knowing that like there are people that like just I mean of course you know that people are going to read your story but like knowing what that feels like and knowing how like intense and personal it can sometimes feel mm. I think for me it's it's been a sort of way of like learning again how to forget it and to like try and trick yourself into a feeling of like privacy and like you're going to write something first for you and then you let it out into the world, but you kind of have to let go of, of yeah, what happens with it because you just really you, can't control like, it. Do you have, yeah. I was going to ask you if you felt like you had to let go of the story entirely and just let people yeah. interpret it for themselves. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's funny too, because then you come and you go on book tour. Like when I, the story came out, I was so proud of myself for like refusing to say whether Robert was a <laughs> jerk or not and refusing to weigh in on any of the <laughs> things. And now you go and you just talk and talk and eventually sort of by accident, you start like giving your opinions, you know, filling in the, <laughs> filling in the space. But yeah, fundamentally, I believe stories belong to their audiences once you write them and it's not your job anymore to try and be a part of that conversation early on were you tempted to do, engage in yeah, the discussion yeah yeah i was i was the most tempted when it felt like people were reading things into the story that they found like hurtful or sort of like problematic and i wanted there's this temptation to jump in and be like no 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 i'm a really good person like my story margo might be making a mistake here but i Kristen rupenian am a perfectly <laughs> you know respectable human who is only ever nice to people um which is not true but you want people to think it um and yeah so i felt it but i knew better i did um for whatever reason, I managed to keep my wits about me just enough to know that it was better <laughs> to let that conversation go. And that also, like, even when there are interpretations I disagreed with or would, like, wanted to make arguments against, I waited and it turned out other people made them better than I ever could. And I think that is the way that it should be. Because I, I feel like readers often add something to the story uh, after it's been published. And do you think the reaction to the story has yeah. made you see it in a different light or? oh yeah yeah i mean it's so dizzying <laughs> like i mean and i knew it intellectually but like to actually experience it to recognize how people see things in your work both that are like like kind of awful and also that are brilliant and you can't have one without the other you know what i mean you want to take credit for all the smart things that you didn't actually <laughs> put in there but like maybe are there you know yeah. but if you do you have to also own all of the mistakes and sort of wobblinesses and like blind spots um and that's like emotionally hard but it feels so true to me it's just like that's what i believe about reading i believe that i am the author when i read someone else's book i can make an argument about it and what the author says doesn't matter as mm -hmm. partly because i did my phd in literature so that was my whole job yeah. right was to say what books meant authors be damned so like now <laughs> um how, what can i say <laughs> and i told you earlier uh, yeah. that i hosted this reading group yeah, uh, really a curious. while ago uh, and one of the stories that we read were cat person uh, and as we discussed it, uh, I noticed that there was this huge generational difference oh, uh, in how they interpreted the yeah. story. Uh, and the older women uh -huh. <laughs> in the reading group, uh, they just couldn't understand why Margot went home with Robert mm. at all. 
but the younger women in the group um, found it relatable, and yeah. they had felt like it, like they was not, they were not able mm -hmm. to to say no and yeah. sort of feel the pressure to be polite and right. not make a scene. Right. Um, and have you noticed that difference? Uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, what I what has really struck me has been the except. I think you're probably right, um, but I have there have been enough exceptions where women who are older have come to me and said the opposite. Have been like the situation was different. We didn't have texting, but that choice really like I went through it, and it was 30 or 40 years ago. Um, and so I think, which I'm always really grateful that they tell me that but I do think there is a way that like I've gotten some pushback actually I feel like it's sort of like more kind of in the middle it's women who are like maybe I mean we should get somebody up here to share I don't want to speak for <laughs> the women in their 40s in the room but like like that there is a kind of sense that like that there was a kind of like a feminism that I think was of a slightly different generation that felt a little more forceful, that felt like you just spoke your mind and, and it was a little more, I think they feel like something is lost sometimes looking at the story and being like, oh, is this really like, that feels like going backwards from where mm -hmm. we were. And I get that. Um, but I also think that like, I don't know, man, I, I think that People, not obviously not everyone has made the decisions that Margot has made, but I think I think that even if just you think about 20 years ago with stuff like this happening, I think almost certainly, but that you might not, it takes, t it actually, like, it's hard to slow down and acknowledge it. I think it's totally easy to be like, well, that kind of sucked, but I said yes, and there wasn't a fight, and so, like, it was fine, and it's not a problem, and I'm moving on. And there's something to be said for that relationship to, like, trauma and trouble, do you know what I mean? But mm -hmm. I feel like trying to claim that like that never would have happened at one point in time because of some like because the next generation has gotten it wrong i would be really skeptical of that yeah and um how many how many of these story of these stories that are in the book were in the making at this point did you have a lot of stories ready when the one cat person was yeah published, yeah and thank goodness i can't imagine <laughs> what it would have been like to try yeah. and write 11 stories like one right after the other um no i had yeah i had most of them um there are two newish stories in the book um death wish the second to last story and then good guy the novella in the middle which i was actually halfway through when cat person got published and i did have a moment where i was like oh my god there's so much pressure i'm never gonna write again and my editor who'd had me send her a bunch of other stuff um saw that half finished novella and was like that finished that and i really owe her i feel like because a i feel like now i can't imagine the collection without it it feels like a real like like important story but also it made me like get back on the horse pretty quickly and just like do my job um which was a good thing to be told to do in that yeah. moment <laughs> and inevitably reader readers will come to this in the context of the wider conversation about yeah. person and consent and yeah and how do you feel about that i mean i feel i feel i feel really proud of the work that the story I ended up doing that cat person did um, and the way that it opened up conversations. And so that does come with it sometimes with a feeling of responsibility. And I did, I was afraid when the book came out, like the book does go some really dark and upsetting places and places that people 
totally legitimately could read the book and be like, this is not what I signed up for. It's not <laughs> what I want. I don't want to read these stories about murders. Like, no, thank you. And walk away. <laughs> and I felt like, I don't know. I mean, I was worried about it, but I also kind of knew I what I am the kind of writer I am. The stories are the stories. And it felt more important just to sort of signal that outright and let people know what they were getting and what they were getting into. Um, and to kind of let them either decide it was for them or it wasn't. And I think the first story, for better or for worse, really does that. It kind of encapsulates the collection as a whole in that it moves from the mundane into the horrific really quickly, maybe more extremely than any of the other stories do. And I felt like I had some feedback from people reading it being like, maybe you want to ease into the like, <laughs> you know, necrophiliac murder story. Like maybe that's not the one to open with. Um, but I was like, you know, at the what would be worse than to put cat person followed by like the other real life stories. So people are at home in bed alone and then they're reading the horror stories and being like, what the hell, you know? So, yeah. And um, one of the recurring themes uh, in this collection is how hard it is to see the other person yeah, clearly. Definitely. And especially people we are attracted to. Yep. Uh, and sort of what we do to cover that up. Yeah. Um, and as a reader, you can see this in Cat Person. Yep. Uh, but also in The Good Guy. Yeah. Uh, and I think we need to talk about Ted. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about Ted. Um, I love Ted. The, who is the self-proclaimed good guy. Uh -huh. um, so tell us about Ted and what your idea of him was when you started writing this story. Sure. And how does he use like this nice guy trope uh, yeah. to his benefit? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Ted, um, how to describe Ted? Ted, um, we, we are introduced to Ted via sort of his worst, like his darkest moment. It's just describing like a really violent and gross sexual fantasy that I won't describe here. Um, <laughs> but then, and, and it goes, and he, it turns, and when he's in a situation where like he's breaking up with a woman and she's like, you've hurt me and you know, you misled me. And he's like, no, I didn't. You misled yourself. Like I haven't done anything wrong. I'm a good guy. And then it flashes back to kind of his teen, when he was a teenager and a young adult and kind of works through his kind of formative relationships with women. And I think there were a bunch of things I wanted to do. Um, I I had the opening sentence in my head as just a like like kind of extreme place to start. I think all like whenever you're writing a story from the point of view of a character who's like clearly not great um <laughs> there's a challenge that becomes like how do you win people over how do you get them to maybe see some of themselves or some of themselves or at least some people that they know and love in this person um and that was like a, a high bar to set so I, I was doing that but I was also thinking about I don't know honestly I was thinking about this dynamic that I see play out all the time um between just people who are dating but specifically between women and men where the woman will go on a date, will go on a few dates with a guy. And these are my friends that I'm talking about. Like, and they'll come home and, and my friends will be like, you know, I'm s this fucking guy, like he's <laughs> such a piece of shit and he won't call me back. And why doesn't he just call me back? And I'm like, you hate him. You think he's a piece of shit. Why do you want him to call you back? <laughs> but they do. And, and that, that struggle that sometimes, and I have been in it. I've been there myself. Like that struggle between both feeling like 
who is this jerk? Like, who clearly <laughs> doesn't have it together and yet feeling like because he's a jerk, he ought to like you. And the frustration <laughs> when he doesn't realize that, like, he ought to be behaving different, differently than he is. And I actually, like, I started with the moment of sympathy where I, ha- I thought, what must it be like to be on the other side of that dynamic? What mm. must it be like to be with someone who's furious at you for not liking him at the same time they're clearly contemptuous of you, you know? And that's... I like still can't quite wrap my mind around it, but but Ted was the beginning of that. It was that question. And I think Ted, as we see, and like you said, he has a story about himself as a good guy that he clings to really tenaciously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it it leads him to mis- to mislead women and also to mislead himself about what he wants and who he is. He uses it as a kind of camouflage, and I think people are taken in by it. But I think he also believes it and he needs to believe it. And I think that actually is another moment where I can feel really close to him because I think that's actually true of all of us, that we all have a story that we're deeply invested in, in which we are the heroes and like we are doing our best. And I think noticing how often that story can be exactly the thing that leads us to mislead people and to go astray um, is a really kind of like important thing to keep in mind. And it reminds me of uh, the Belgian relationship expert, Esther Perel. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've totally read Esther Perel. Although uh, sometimes I have some feelings about Esther Perel. But what, yeah. what, in what way does it no, remind you of her? She said something in an interview yeah. with The New Yorker, actually, yeah. uh, that reminded me of your book. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she said, when you pick a partner, you pick a story. Oh, yeah. And then you find yourself in a play you never auditioned for. Uh-huh. And that is when the narratives clash. That could totally like be an opening quote. Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> Do you think we get it wrong a lot of the time when we try to interpret the other person and their thoughts and behavior? Yeah, I think we definitely do. And I think that's a theme that runs through all the stories is the feeling like, and I say this, like as a person who like as a bookish young woman for a really long time in my 20s, I thought of my empathy as like my one great superpower. Mm-hmm. Like I was so good at reading other people. I was so good, I thought, at like knowing what they needed and knowing how to give them what they wanted and knowing how to sort of be the person they needed me to be. And then to finish that sentence is so I could get what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I could have a kind of power. And I think it it is one of the things I've had to learn most painfully over and over again, how I'm so often wrong. And it, and it's not that empathy is bad or that like the interpreting people is wrong. I think it's necessary. We I don't think it's possible to be in relationships without it. But I think I had a real lack of humility in terms of like how much I didn't know and how much of what I thought about other people were just hypotheses and often ones that were like fairly self-serving in terms of like what it meant of what they were thinking about me and like (laughs) how great I was and how, you know, all of that stuff. And I think, um, yeah, I don't know. I think Margot does that. I think Margot, I love Margot. I feel really close to her in so many ways, but she's so sure at every step that she knows what Robert is thinking and like where he is. Mm. And it, it takes her down. Like it, it it really leads her astray. Do you think that has to do with the ways that we are communicating as well with texting and you can like read it over and over and interpret? 
Yeah, I think of that as like grist for the interpretation mill, right? Yeah. It's like we always have done it. It wasn't invented with texting. But now there's like so many other – there's so many potential like clues to interpret. And you see it happening when you're reading a text and your friend is sitting next to you and you're like talking about it. And you're never like, oh, a text. You're like, oh, like a text. It came 43 seconds after the last text. <laughs> and it has a period instead of an exclamation point, And, you know, it's missing a word here. And that means he thinks X, Y, Z. And I think you never say, and what it means is nothing. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. it means he, like he didn't text me back because his phone is dead or he doesn't like you. Like, I have no idea. That's never the interpretive answer. Who knows? You know? <laughs> but it should be because that's mostly what it means. Yeah. Nothing. I think Emily Witt wrote something really great about this oh, in, yeah? in her book, Future Sex. Uh-huh. Have you read it? I've read a couple essays from the book. I haven't yeah. read the whole thing. She says, she says something like, um, she feels like because she has recently been dumped uh-huh. and started dating again, yeah. and she feels like she's being held hostage by her phone right. into its cliches. Right? Yeah, that's a great line. way of putting totally. it. <laughs> totally. Um, and the title of the book, yeah, uh, it's a certain kind of sentence that we recognize. From, yeah, I don't know, porn or whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no one usually puts it that bluntly, but that's absolutely <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and it's both seductive and yeah. manipulating in a way. Yeah, and menacing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I was thinking about this because what unites these characters yeah. is that they uh, they don't always know what they mm-hmm. want or they don't always see the consequences right. Right. Uh, of the things that they desire if they right. were to get them. Yeah. Um, but do you think that has something to do with just being young, trying to like, navigate yeah yeah maybe for sure i i and i think it's like it's not that idea that like our desires aren't just pure things that emanate from us but that they're shaped by the people we're in relationships with so we want like when you want a person part of what you want is the way that they make you feel about yourself you want them to want you and that makes you feel something right it's always reflecting back and forth and i think that's normal it's not like pathological or strange or maybe it's strange but it's normal you know um we all do it um but i do think the idea that like if you don't know what you want and you haven't paused to kind of ask yourself that then you are more likely to be swayed by someone telling you what you want i do think and like to believe it when someone makes a strong claim i think is true and is is like something you have to learn at least i think for women like you have to learn how to sort of pay attention and kind of reality check when you're being told, well, you're a young woman, this is what you must want, um, to like look and be able to tune out that noise and say, actually, I don't. And you're, you have, a, you have, a, you are motivated in why you were telling me that this is what I want. Um, I do think that's, that is something that takes a long time or at least it for me to learn. Yeah. Uh, and sex is really difficult to write about. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's why the bad sex and fiction awards right. <laughs> exist. Right. It's a lot of male Norwegian writers Is actually, <laughs> on, the, on that list. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but do you like to write about sex and why? Yeah, I do. I, I think it's so much easier. It's funny. <laughs> There's this thing, this woman wrote a thing about me one time. It was before my book even came out. She found like two of like cat person and one other thing I'd ever written. And she wrote this essay that was like, it had the line that I, I think about all the time. It was like, one wonders if Kristen Rupenian even admits of the existence of good sex. <laughs> and I was like, excuse you. <laughs> but, 
but and I do, um, but I do think that it's actually it's so much easier to write about bad sex, right? The people who are getting swept up in the bad sex writing awards are almost always trying to convey what it's like to have good sex, which I do think is almost impossible. And I cleverly circumvent that problem <laughs> by writing only about, or pretty much only about pretty terrible sex. Um, and then sex that also, I think one of the things that sex is doing in the book, like this is a book that's filled with sex, but when I try and defend myself for that, I always say it's a book about power and it's all, all of the sex in the story is pretty much like defined by like really asymmetrical power relations or like they're they're it's all sex in which that dynamic has somehow gone askew it's gone awry and i do think that that um that fact makes it easier to know kind of what the sex is doing in the story and to like connect it to character and connect it to plot and connect it to the other themes in a way that i think it is almost it's so easy to go wrong when you're writing a sex scene sort of just for the fun of it or, or because, you know, you're trying to capture something that like is essentially personal and like going well. And um, yeah, we're running out, out of oh, time yeah. now. I have so, so oh, many no. questions for you. I have no idea. But, I'll attack forever. But um, in one of my favorite stories in the book, uh, Biter, mm -hmm. uh, a woman fantasizes a about biting her new co-worker. That's right. Corey Allen. Yes. And that's a great name, I think. Thanks. <laughs> I can see him. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, and I especially love the way she imagines the possible aftermath of yeah. uh, her biting him. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted you to read uh, for okay. us the I story. Would, I would be happy to do that. How much time do we actually have? My, my. Okay, it's like five minutes to eight, but so, okay. we, we can go a little bit okay. over the time. So. Okay, well, so then that'll sort of go be on. it. Uh, I will ask some, okay. some questions. Well, then maybe I should just read that that one section. Um, okay, I'll read um, a short, a slightly shorter chunk than I than I would have otherwise, and, and I'll just give you. <laughs> you did a great job. There's no other, there, there's no other backstory. She, want, <laughs> she used to be a biter when she was a kid. She still wants to bite. She just like sort of never quite dropped it. Um, but she managed <laughs> to keep it in check until this new um, office manager comes and he's kind of like a jerk, kind of sleazy. So then, all right. So she's thinking about it. <sighs> Maybe I will bite Corey Allen, Ellie thought after the meeting. Ellie worked in communications, which meant that she spent 90% of her time crafting emails that no one ever read. She had a savings account and life insurance, but no lover, no ambition, no close friends. Her entire existence, she sometimes felt, was premised on the idea that pursuing pleasure was less important than avoiding pain. Perhaps the problem with adulthood was that you weighed the consequences of your actions too carefully in a way that left you with a life you despised. What if Ellie did bite Corey Allen? What if she did? What then? That night, Ellie changed into her nicest pajamas, lit a candle, and poured herself a glass of Cabernet. Then she uncapped a pen, opened her favorite notebook, and turned to a fresh page. Reasons not to bite Corey Allen. One, it is wrong. Two, I could get in trouble. She nibbled on the tip of her pen, then added two subsidiary points. Reasons not to bite Corey Allen. One, it is wrong. Two, I could get in trouble. A, I could get fired. B, 
be, I could get arrested or fined. Ellie thought, if it meant that I could bite Corey, I would not mind getting fired. For the past year and a half, she'd spent most of her, her lunch hour, most days, on her phone, swiping through job postings on Monster.com. She was ready for a new position and felt perfectly well qualified for one. However, finding a new job after quitting your old one was not the same as finding a new job after you'd been fired from your old job for biting. <laughs> Would it be impossible to get a new job in those circumstances or merely very difficult? It was hard to know. Ellie sipped her wine and turned her attention to B, I could get arrested or fined. Well, that was certainly a possibility. But the truth was, if a woman bit a man in an office environment, there would be a strong assumption that the man had done something to deserve it. If, for example, she went up to Corey and bit him, in full view of everyone at Monday morning meeting, and then later, when they asked her why she'd done it, she answered, sexual gratification, then yes, she'd probably be arrested. <laughs> but if instead she bit Corey in private, say, in the copy room, and then when they asked her why she'd done it, she said, he tried to touch me inappropriately, or even so as not to mar his reputation. He came up behind me and scared me. I bit him instinctively. I'm so sorry. <laughs> then people would probably give her the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> when you got right down to it, as a young white woman without a criminal record, Ellie probably had at least one get-out-of-jail-free card. As long as she spun some semi-reasonable story, she would be believed. In fact, Ellie thought, as she stretched out her legs and refilled her glass of wine, there was another possibility for how this could play out. What if she went up to Corey in private and bit him, and the experience was so bizarre he didn't tell anyone about it because he had trouble believing it himself? Imagine. It's late in the afternoon, past five, dark already. The office is empty. Everyone but Corey and Ellie has gone home. Corey is loading paper into the Xerox machine when Ellie enters the room. She stands behind him inappropriately close. He thinks he knows what is coming. He stiffens, preparing to politely reject her, not because he has standards for workplace propriety, but because he's already hooking up with Rachel in HR. Ellie, he begins apologetically as she grabs his forearm and lifts it to her mouth. Corey's lovely face contorts first in shock, then pain. Stop it, Ellie, he cries out, but no one hears him. The tendons of his arm roll and snap beneath Ellie's jaws. Finally, Corey gathers his wits enough to shove Ellie away. She stumbles backward, lands against the stacks of copy paper, and slides to the ground. Corey stares at her in horror, clutching his bleeding arm. He's waiting for her explanation, but she gives him none. Instead, she stands up calmly, straightens her skirt, and wipes the blood from her mouth before she leaves the room. What does Corey do? Of course, he could run straight to HR and say, Ellie bit me, but after all, it was an office, not a preschool. Everything about the conversation would be ridiculous. Ellie, did you bite Corey? They would ask. And Ellie would raise her eyebrows and say, uh, no. What a weird question. If the HR people tried to push and said, Ellie, these are serious allegations, all Ellie would have to say was, yeah, seriously insane. Of course I did not bite the office manager, and I don't know why he's saying that I did. <laughs> really, the odds were high Corey wouldn't say anything at all. He would stay in the copy room for a while, contemplating the situation, and then the next day, he'd decide that the easiest thing to do would be to pretend it hadn't happened. He'd show up to work in a long sleeve shirt, to cover the ugly bruise on his arm, the little half-moon where she'd marked him with her teeth. 
And then part of Corey Allen's brain would be reserved for keeping track of where exactly Ellie was. <laughs> She'd catch him looking at her in meetings, and when they were at office parties together, he'd continually be moving, trying to keep as far as possible away from her. In a way, it'd be like they were always dancing, even if he never spoke to her again. Months later, when no one else was watching, she'd grin and snap her jaws at him, and he'd turn ghost pale and hurry from the room. He would remember her for the rest of his life. They'd be joined by the glistening strands of his fear. Later that night, the sweat drying on her body, her legs tangled in the sheets, Ellie forced herself to go back out to the living room and get her notebook. Fantasies were fantasies, but it was important to keep at least one foot in the realm of the real. She got back into bed and opened the notebook and rewrote her list. Reasons not to bite Corey Allen. One, it is wrong. Two, it is wrong. Three, it is wrong. Four, it is wrong. So. (laughs) So the reason I like this story in particular, because you write a lot of, these stories are about mm-hmm. power. Yeah, it's totally. Way, but they're, so, they're always also about uh, abuse of power. Mm-hmm. And you write about abusive women as well. Definitely. Uh, and Ellie, she's an active participant trying to yeah. get something. And I was wondering if your under- understanding of power dynamics between men and women has changed I mean, since I wrote the story or like over the course of writing the book? Since you were a teenager. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think one of the things I realize now is that being powerless is powerless is uncomfortable and also having power is uncomfortable. And I think I, in some ways, I'm more comfortable having power than not. And, And I think... What on whatever side of the spectrum you fall, whether you're uncomfortable with your powerlessness or or with admitting that sometimes you do have power, you're really it gets back to that storytelling impulse that you want to tell yourself a story that puts you in a space where you're comfortable. And I think the women in the stories who are abusive, who do um, abuse their power, do it. And we are sort of, I think sometimes we as readers are swept along by their idea that that they can't have power, that it's impossible for them to really be exerting power um, in a way that that is misleading. But what I love about Ellie, and I think she's, I end the book with her in part because she has a clear understanding of power. She knows what she wants. She knows that it's wrong. And so she can't do it. And she wrestles with that in a way that seems to me like after like all of the ambivalences of the early stories kind of wonderful you know and we don't see a lot of I mean like I loved writing her because I feel like it's so rare to see a woman just like want something and fight it and figure out as like you will eventually do like some acceptable way to get it and I feel like she kind of has that arc and it's it was satisfying to write yeah yeah Uh, and now we're definitely Definitely. out of time but I wanted to uh, end with asking you what's what's next for you and i know that your book is uh being adapted into an hbo series yeah potentially um it's been optioned so lots of things get optioned that don't eventually make it to screen but i'm hopeful um they have writers attached which is really cool um and they're they're i think they're super smart and i like them a lot and it's their project so like that's exciting active 
part in it. No, or... if it actually makes it to the screen, then I may have a chance to be in the writer's room. But I think it's really kind of cool, actually, to think about people, other artists that I respect, taking my stories and kind of using them as a jumping off point to make something of themselves. Um, and I think should the, the series happen, that's exactly what it will be. It will be as much them as me, which is really cool. Um, yeah, and then I'm working on a novel, and I've also been doing... Like I said, I've been doing some screenwriting um, as a way of kind of escaping sometimes when, you know, in the way that I wrote short stories to procrastinate on the novel I'm now writing <laughs> screenplays to procrastinate from short stories and novels. So um, Lord knows where I'll end up next to be writing like poetry or so soon, probably. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'm 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 just kind of getting through this crazy year and trying to read and write when I can. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're looking forward to new uh, writing from you. Thank you. Uh, and thank you so much no, for thank coming you. all the way to Oslo. Yeah. Uh, and thank you to all of you who came out. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you all <laughs> so much. Du har hört på Litteraturhusets podcast som presenterar bearbetade versioner av samtaler och föredrag från Litteraturhusets program. Del gärna podcasten med familj och vänner via iTunes eller SoundCloud om du liker det du har hört. Följ oss också på Facebook och på litteraturhuset.no för information om flera aktuella arrangemang. Musiken är er laget av Apotek.